Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Larry Hughes is going to pop out and get the ball. Jordan's going to rub his man off of Leitner and then cut down the center and gets a nice pass from Larry Hughes. Let's start off with a word from our sponsor, Bet Online. Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds, and it's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. And now let's get to the show. Okay, welcome into this week's Believe in Wizards podcast. There's a very real shot that this is the last podcast of the 2020-2021 season, uh, depending on how tonight's game against the Philadelphia 76ers goes. Game one, the Wizards were respectable. They lost 125-118. couple careless mistakes cost them that game, but I felt like they could have won it. Larry, game two, they lost 120-95, to but I actually felt like they were in that game for a large portion of it. Few things went wrong. They missed some easy shots. Things kind of snowballed. And and I just feel like that happens against a good team sometimes. Game three, they lost 132 to 103. And my wife and I actually went to this game. So it was cool to be back in the building. But it never felt like they were really in that game from the start. You know, they're trending in the wrong direction for the series down 03. What happened? Like, what, what do you what do you see going on here? Is this them checking out? Have they realized that they probably can't win this series? Like, what what are you seeing from them on the court? No, I think it's a matter of, of the Sixers imposing their will mm-hmm. on the team that they are expected to beat. Sure. And, you know, obviously it's upset City if the Wizards do anything, even if they drag it five, six games. I mean, it, it's something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a an MVP candidate on the team. You have two defensive player of the year candidates on the team, uh, definitely, you know, first and second teamers on on the team. So they have expectations. And I think it's just a matter of them imposing their will. But I do have a question for you as far as, you know, just being able to be back in the in the building and, you know, not just for, you know, a regular season game before a playoff game. Like what, what was the atmosphere there? Uh, it was interesting when we were queued up out front, like the lines were very slow and they were taking their time letting everybody in and they restricted, you know, which doors you could come through and things like that. So uh, there was like a nice buzz outside the arena. And I saw like, I would say 90% wizards jerseys. Like it actually felt like a full crowd, you know, with everybody kind of line about front, we were kind of hyped, you know, we actually sat pretty high up for this one, which is not, is not my wife's style. She normally, if she wants to go, she wants to sit in good seats. So 
we, we kind of rough this one a little bit in the upper deck here just to get in the building. But I, so I don't know if it was just maybe our section, but it started out okay. And then I would say by the end of the first quarter, it was largely dead. And, and by the fourth quarter, it felt like a Sixers home game. You heard no, like no sounds from anyone wearing Wizards gear. And maybe the, like, I heard people saying that it was like a 50, 50 split Wizards Sixers fans. I don't think that was the case. I think it was just that very small minority of folks were very loud because they had something to cheer for. And the Wizards like felt flat as a team. And I think the crowd reflected that. I mean, maybe, maybe it was the other way. The crowd felt flat and the Wizards felt flat because of it, but it was great to be back in the building. Everybody seemed reasonably responsible. Folks were masked for the most part. Like it was a good vibe. You know, it, people weren't sort of too drunk and, and being obnoxious or anything. Like it, I think people were just happy to see live sports again, which was cool. I would say we handled it more classily than a lot of these other fan bases seem to be uh, at the moment. And I do want to get back to that. But I, overall, Larry, it was cool. It was just cool to see a game. And I don't even care that they got smoked while we were there. It was just nice to see a Wizards playoff game. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking, man. I saw you post, uh, you know, being in the stands uh, on social media and just, you know, just wondering how that, you know, that felt of obviously covering him for the entire season and hearing the fan noise, you know, through the through the television. And if it gave them any sort of life that you can feel in, in the arena, I was just curious to, to hear that. Yeah, it was it was kind of just a weird vibe, I would say. I don't know if people, because of the masks, felt weirder about being loud, but it felt like a flat crowd and and they felt like a flat team. And, and I'd be, I would love to know, you know, which, which led to which uh, chicken egg there, but it just sort of a, the wizards, or I guess I would say Washington as a sports town. Uh, and I hope I don't get any shit for this online. I'm, I'm born and raised here, but we're just not really like a crowd that's super into a bad team. I mean, it, it, it's sort of tough and, you know, maybe it would be different if it was a one, one series coming into DC, but, the fact that they didn't start out particularly strong, like they missed a lot of shots easy. Philly got up, you know, jumped up a 10 point lead almost instantly. I think it just sort of killed them from the start. If they'd have come out, you know, strong, I think you might've felt like a, a difference from the crowd. Yeah. Well, I, I know, you know, Brad is definitely one of those guys that feeds off of the crowd. Mm -hmm. And obviously Westbrook is one of those guys that feeds off the crowd. And that's, you know, that's some of that extra boost that you need. Um, you know, when you're in a tough battle or a tough series to have, you know, that, that crowd engagement, sure. you know, kind of push you uh, to different limits. So, you know, it's unfortunate those guys didn't, didn't pull that energy from the crowd, but it's going to be a tough, uh, tough haul, obviously being, being down on three, but I look at it as being a tough series to win, you know, from, from the get go. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's about expectations, right? Like we, we kind of buried this team two months ago. So the fact that they're, they're doing anything in the playoffs, you know, is pretty cool. Larry, you mentioned something a second ago about the Sixers imposing their will. And I want to get a sense from you. How much of that is a difference in mentality that Doc Rivers has brought to the Sixers? Because last, you know, the last couple of years, they've uh, they've played with their food a little bit. You know, like every first round series they should have won, they made tough. And last year was a little different with Simmons being hurt. But there's always like Embiid misses a game with some weird ailment or whatever. And especially in, in games two and three, he has not been messing around with them at all. Do, do you think coaching makes that big of a difference? I, I do. I do. Um, and I think that they've, you know, Philly's been dealing with that for a while, you know, with the process and, you know, giving, you know, the, the coach a chance to, 
you know, realize some of those rewards or some of those gains with the process. But I felt like they, when Boston beat Philly, I, I felt Philly had a better team. I just felt that Brad outcoached um, the Sixers coach. So I, I've been looking at that for a while now, just knowing um, that that group needed a different voice. And when you bring Doc in, who's a season, who's a very different voice with the raspy talk and, yeah. and, and how that goes. But he's um, he's a veteran in the game. He's been on winning teams. He's obviously experienced uh, getting to the top of the mountain, but not going over it you know, a, a few times. So he's experienced in, in the ups and downs of the season, but also how you know finicky the playoffs are and, and what needs to be done. So the mentality of, of not playing with your food, I think that that's something that could, could probably um, – you know, point back to Doc and having, the, you know, the players understand that it's 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 winter go home. And when you go home, then you have to hear all the criticism and all the things that go along with not reaching your full potential. So I think that he brought that value uh, to the Sixers for sure. And I, I definitely think it was time for them to make a, a coaching change. And it looks like it's benefiting them um, in, in the right in the right way. A little foreshadowing here, folks. We will get to Scott Brooks and and do the Wizards need a new voice. I, I promise that was the majority of the fan question. So we'll we'll circle back to that. Larry, how much, you know, the benefit from Doc is that he was like not just a former player, but like a pretty good one, you know, not not a perennial all-star, but but a good NBA player. Or is it more that he's a championship coach? Is it both? Can you separate the two? Like what gives him that much extra credibility? I think he's put in his time. Like Doc's been around for a while, man. I mean, on the coaching, the player side, obviously the coaching side, the commentating side, uh, back to the coaching side. Uh, so he's been around the game, and he's been in situations where he's put good people around him. His coaching staff, his assistant coaches have been great. Uh, so that's our credibility when a player can come in and, and, and have a direction, have you know, just an understanding of what they're supposed to do, what their expectations are, how they're going to fit into this team. Uh, what they're going to bring to the table. I know all this because T. Lou was under him and, and me and T. Lou are really good friends like family. So I understand like what goes into, you know, kind of that thought process because, you know, getting into coaching, I had some thoughts of doing that. And T. Lou is one of the guys that I talked to. So you want to make sure that you're around a great coach, you know, a, a good head coach is going to allow you to, to spread your wings. And I think Doc does that. So he's getting credibility, not only from the coaching staff and the, the good assistants that are coming up with good brains, but also free agents and also players that are, that are veterans and, and younger players because he has so many guys that he can point to to say how he helped or he was a support system for this guy or that guy. So I think all of that stuff goes and in, comes into play when you talk about Doc um, as a guy that's been around the NBA for a very long time. I don't want to sound like too much of a an old man here, but it does seem like this uh, younger millennial generation here, they may be harder to reach uh, or, you know, think they know a little more than than the old guys coming in did. So that's why I was curious, like, you know, for the Wizards, as we talk about next coach or, or whatever, presumably they'll have a, a new coach next season. We'll see, I guess, uh, how much it matters that they have a former player that they respect. I'm wondering if that matters more now than maybe it used to, to have somebody that they can be like, Hey, this guy did it. He knows what I'm going through. I think there's some of that goes on to just depending on the understanding of the athlete, the, the, the younger player that's playing now, because some of these guys are completely oblivious to the guys that played before <laughs> them. That's fair. So it's more of, um, it's, it's more of having the understanding of what they've done in, in the game today as, mm -hmm. as opposed to them actually playing in the game. Gotcha. I mean, you use that as a resource when you're having conversation with your coaches and with players, 
but I think that you're going to rely more on what you've done, you know, to support your players that were in similar positions, you know, that these players are now coming into, because you're right. I mean, they've seen a lot of basketball now. They've seen a lot of concepts. So they do tend to think that they have it figured out. But when you bring in a brain like Doc and he's bringing in all these other minds with him, like you, you can't fight that. Yeah. If you have a young player and you can say, Hey, you know, Joel Embiid, this is what Kevin Garnett did. And this is, you know, Hey, uh, Tobias, this is what worked for Paul Pierce. Like, I just think that goes such a, a long way for them or, Hey, you know, Seth Curry, you're maybe not the same player, but we're running the same sets for you that we did for Ray Allen. Uh, I just think those guys are like, now, now I'm paying attention a little bit more. Sorry, Brett Brown, but that, Bingo. That has to hit you hit it. that's it. You hit it. Uh, you hit it. Giving them a reference point to someone that they are somewhat familiar with. Yeah. Yep. That That's it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the case for, you know, getting somebody in here, especially with this Wizards team that that has that kind of pedigree. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about who the new up and coming coaches are that could be brought in or, or things like that. But that's why I'm like leaning towards somebody who's been around the block a little bit more for those reference points. Sticking with the Wizards coaching staff a little bit. After going down 03, Scott Brooks said, we're not trying to win all four tomorrow night. We just have to win one. We fought through a lot. We've overcome a lot. This is just another opportunity for us to do that. That's obviously coach speak. I'm not going to do like the Homer propaganda. Larry, can they be the first team ever to come back and win a series after being down 03? Like this series is over. I think everybody realizes that. But can they win one game? Like, do you see any chance that they don't get swept at this point? At this point, I think it's tough. I think when you have an MB playing with the focus that he's playing with, you know, he's not floating around the three-point line like he was in previous years, uh, doing more things in the paint. I think he's just matured to the point where uh, when you get in a playoff series with him, it's going to take, you know, obviously having great players on the other side, but those players playing great as well because he's such a force. I'm saying that he's not floating around the three-point line, but he's an inside-outside threat sure. Uh, for sure. So I think it's going to be tough, man. I don't see them winning a game because of how focused these guys are. And they're not interested in having, like he said, they, they don't want to play with their food. Like it, it, it is fun to go out and play basketball, but I don't think that they're in it for the fun right now. I think that they're in it. They're in, they're, they're on a mission to move forward. And if that's winning a championship, I think that obviously everybody's goal is winning a championship. But I think that they're interested in moving forward. So I think it's going to be tough uh, for the Wizards to pull out a game. Um, you know, just, just kind of watching their mentality of how they're going out to compete every night. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the thing that makes it even tougher, uh, Westbrook still supposedly limited by the ankle and now Ish Smith going to be questionable with a groin. So both guys are game time decisions tonight. I would assume both of them play, you know, but if they're not at 100 percent, that also doesn't help your chances. That loss the other night was the third biggest loss in Wizards Bullets franchise playoff history. 76ers won by 29 points. The Wizards lost in 2008 by 30 points to the Cleveland Cavaliers. So uh, you were responsible for that. Do you, do you remember uh, that particular game? No, I don't. I don't. And, and, and losing the playoffs like that is, is a nasty taste in your mouth. And that carries over from game to game. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot to get out of that funk. I was hoping you say, yes, I remember that. And I should talk Gilbert the whole time or something. But uh, that... I, I don't remember that as a fan. I remember those series, obviously, but I, I don't remember one of them being that big of a blowout. 
And then in 1987, uh, the Pistons beat the Bullets by 43, which is pretty brutal. You know, Larry, this one was weird for me. Like, I just couldn't figure out what was happening this entire game. Like, they weren't doubling Embiid as much, at least that I could tell. But somehow there were more open three-point shooters, including Embiid himself. He hasn't just sort of like lazily taken threes, but like when he's wide open, he'll confidently shoot them. And he got a lot of wide open looks. I don't know if that was intentional, but how do you leave Danny Green and Seth Curry open like a dozen times in a half of basketball if you're not doubling Embiid? Like, how does that happen on a like a defensively like a a team that has a defensive coordinator and is trying to focus on defense? Like, that's embarrassing to me. Yeah, well, we know that they haven't necessarily – I mean, they've talked about defense all year, but that hasn't necessarily been the the focus. I mean, you got a, a shot in the arm when you brought Gafford in, yeah. uh, and then his – you know, that steam kind of left with him not playing as many minutes or, you know, understanding you know, the concepts that they want, wanted to run on offense. So, yeah, I mean, they've been struggling all year on the defensive end, and it's, it's definitely going to be magnified in, in the playoffs uh, when you're seeing the, the, the same team, uh, you know, over and over. And I just think it's a matter of them not knowing what to do with Embiid, you know, as far as double team, not double team, show a show, big to big double. And the Wizards are not scoring that many points to to give up uncontested three-pointers. So I think that they need to figure out if we're going to lose the game, let's lose the game by them shooting twos versus them shooting threes um, and and see where that gets them. But it's going to be tough, man. Embiid's a load down there, and I don't think that they – have quite figured out what they want to do with them. I think things that they've tried uh, weren't necessarily successful. They weren't terrible, but I don't think that they know exactly what they what they want to do, and that's confusing everyone. Yeah, I mean, the Sixers are just better, you know? Like, at a certain point, there's only so much you can game plan for to account for that. They were respectable in game one. I actually thought the game plan from game one was largely successful, just the better team won. And like I said, I, I thought game two just sort of, like, got away from them a little bit. Uh, And Scott Brooks said after game three that we played hard, but we didn't play well. When you're in the playoffs, you have to be able to do both. I thought that about game two. In game three, I didn't actually feel like they were playing as hard as they could the whole time. Like, again, everybody sort of looked resigned to their fate by like midway through the second quarter. And, you know, when you're down 11 almost instantly, uh, it, they just looked like that the whole rest of the way. They looked like sort of shell-shocked or punch-drunk, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it, these are the playoffs. I mean, high intensity, you know, a lot of energy has been spent both mentally and physically, and the games are now coming. So you talk about those growings and those hamstrings and, you know, the starts and the stops and these things that, that these guys have to go through just to compete, to to stay on the – obviously, the, the Sixers are a better group as we see it right now. So the, the amount of energy – that they have to expend to just to play at that level, not to not to exceed the level that they're playing at, but just to play at that level. I think it's it's just a bit much, um, you know. And this group is is not necessarily prepared as a whole to 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 win a series. I mean, to win a game, I would say, if it wasn't 0-3, I would say, yeah, we gotta win a game. Uh, but I think that these guys are focused now that I, you know they've saw what seen what you know, Miami's done and, and, and you know, um, Milwaukee's done, you know, that series over. Um, they see what the Nets are doing with um, with the Celtics. So I think that they're focused on, you know, moving on. It's going to be tough. If you look at sort of the best teams in the league and maybe Brooklyn is sort of an exception to this, but like 
Philly, their two best players are Embiid and Simmons. They're both good defensively. You look at Milwaukee, and whether it's Giannis and Middleton or Giannis and Holiday, those guys are good defensively. Brooklyn, you know, like Duran, when he wants to be as good defensively, I actually think James Harden is as bad defensively as he gets credit for. Like he can be solid, especially in the post and in the playoffs. Uh, the Lakers, LeBron and AD, like LeBron sort of plays defense when he feels like it at this point in his career, but he can lock in when he needs to. How much harder is it as a team to win anything of consequence when both of your best two players are meh defenders at best? It's tough. It's tough because, I mean, the expectation is for, for your best guys to go out and you show that effort, and you're obviously not only showing that effort, but you're actually accomplishing your goal. And that brings everyone else with you, right? If you have a, a defensive guy that's that's special or that's good, and if you have two guys that have a defensive mindset, then you become special because that's, you know, you, you have more energy for those other guys to follow when you talk about rotations. And then you talk about it's five people on the court. And if two guys are really active and engaged, I mean, all you need is one and a half others to really, you know, be solid and play that good team defense. Uh, so that's what, you know, that's what, what, I, what I see when you talk about playoffs in defense versus, you know, your regular season defense. You have to be engaged and be, and, and be engaged, but, all, you know, physically and mentally in the regular season, it takes it to a whole nother level from a mental standpoint when you get to the playoffs because, again, you're seeing the same teams are running these same sets so you have to lock into a completely different level uh, and, and having multiple guys to do that is very, um, is very good. I, I'd add too. I mean, Kyrie is, is, is a guy that I watch on defense yeah. and I think that he's underrated. I mean, people don't talk enough about sure. his understanding of defense and how he uses his hands and he his arms and how he uses his chest uh, to play defense. So I think that, that the Nets have a guy is, is a great offensive player, but is an underrated defensive player, which I think bodes well for them you know, as they keep going. It's really funny that you said that because I've always sort of the narrative around Kyrie is that he doesn't really play much defense, you know, playoffs again is a little different, but watching that Celtics game last night, specifically, there were a couple of times he got switched on the Tatum and he just found a way to get fingertips on the ball, like multiple times. And Tatum couldn't bully him because he was like afraid to dribble around Kyrie. And and like you said, it's a, being so smart about basketball that like, all right, he's going to do this. I know to stick my hand there and, you know, maybe he doesn't fight through screens or whatever, but like he's enough to be disruptive, I think. And, and even if you had Brad and Westbrook were like consistently solid defenders, I just think that alone would make such a big difference. Like Brad had a possession early in game three where like he really bottled up Tobias Harris and was like, you know, basically about to slap the floor. Like it looked like old school, like Duke defense, you know? And then two minutes later, he like made no attempt to fight through a screen. And then like the next possession, you have Westbrook who thought he got fouled. And then he like, didn't even run down and they scored in like an easy, you know, five on four fast break. And it's just like, you just can't win that way. You know, if, if it happens one possession, so be it. Like if Embiid isn't back, you know, for one possession that doesn't hurt Philly, but you have to set the tone when you're so heavily oriented around those two guys. And, and I just don't think they make the effort most of the time. 
Well, I think that that's the blueprint. We you, we talk about the league being a copycat league, and we talk mm-hmm. about that a lot of times on the offensive end, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, this team runs this set, and this kind of trickles down the league. You have to think about that on the defensive side of the ball as well, um, understanding those components that help you become a better team and win games. Those are the things that are done on the defensive end, and those are the, the, the teams that are engaged. The teams that are at the top of the league that are chasing that championship have a have a defensive tone to them. Uh, you have obviously the Nets who kind of step outside of that, but we've talked about that those players can actually be good defend good defensive players, you know, when they want to. And I think that they're smart enough to, to engage in that. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the top teams, I mean, it, there's a defensive tone to all of these teams. And when you talk about chasing and moving up the ladder, it's yes, you want to score points. Yes, it's an offensive league, but just take a look at the landscape and make sure that you're following the right system as far as to how to win games. And I'm just speaking on, you know, the Wizards and how they want to move and acquire different players. Yes, you have to score basketball. You have to score points in the game of basketball. But if you just look at the nature of the league and you look at the top teams, you have to start to create a team that has a defensive presence and a defensive mind in order to really put yourself in a position to make a difference it's it's cool and it's fun to score a bunch of points it's cool it's fun to, to get the triple double but you have to have guys that have stats on the other side of the ball in order to to be successful and each of those teams for the most part have sort of a perimeter and interior anchor you know like one of those two guys is typically you know good good enough to bottle somebody up from from each side of the floor and you know, for the Wizards, like maybe Gafford can be that guy. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about him and his impact, but they don't have the perimeter guy. And I know they want Rui to be that guy, but, you know, he still can't really guard quicker perimeter players, particularly effectively. I think he's been a lot better defensively this year overall. I hope that he continues to grow in that, but that has to be offseason priority. Number one, I think is like, here is a guy that can stop somebody else's best player on the wing. And and I just, that that's, what's missing from this whole roster. And that led to a lineup uh, the other night of Russell Westbrook, Bradley Beal, Howell Neto, Ish Smith, and Robin Lopez. People were losing their shit on the internet about the fact that the wizards went with basically a four guard, uh, all guys, six, four, six, three and under against the biggest team in the NBA. Like, I just don't understand how, as a coach, you can roll that out and think that, that that's going to be successful for you. Yeah, I mean, you, you played in the league, man. When, when you roll that sort of lineup out on the court, you know, with the size, not, you know, not the skill level of the Agreed. guys. Yeah. But when you roll this, that, that size out there, as a former player, you know that your confidence goes up a couple notches Mm -hmm. you know that just with the size advantage anytime that you catch the basketball you have the advantage just to shoot the ball over top so for me that turns into the mental side right so yes we needed those players to be out there physically right to to, we need five players out there but the five players you out that you put out there I'm sure that you gave a mental advantage to the other team because of who you put out there so now you put them at a physical advantage, uh, disadvantage, but you also put them at a mental disadvantage as well, because now you have to understand this as a, as a former player that you've just given this group a little bit more confidence with the group that you put out there on the court. 
Mm-hmm. And that's sort of an inside sort of deal is, you know, from a former player understanding like, okay, the coach put this guy on me. It's going to boost. It's, it's all internal, right? It's, yeah. it's just because this guy's on me, that doesn't mean that I'm going to score, but it gives me a little bit more confidence in what I'm trying to do because of the stature of, of players that are going out there. So if you put six foot players out there, you talk about a big team. Oh, that, we we're, there's nothing that they can do with us now. I mean, right. we're just going to play and see what happens. At the college level, I'm all for like, take your five best guys and throw them out there in a big situation and let's just like let them figure it out. You know, with some exceptions, maybe at the NBA level, that's like the cute, like, let's play with heart gimmicky stuff. It doesn't work like Tobias Harris isn't sitting there and thinking like, oh, shucks, is Smith is so scrappy. I'm nervous now. He's like, all right, shit, somebody throw me the ball and block. And Philly especially is a team that's like willing to take advantage of size mismatches. I just I think you were sending the wrong message to your team. And if you were worried guys weren't playing hard enough or whatever, find the last guy on the bench. They might make a mistake, but I'd have rolled four wings out there with Brad or Westbrook or whoever. And and just said, like, all right, we're going to match them this way. But going ultra small, I just didn't understand. And I didn't think Rui had played poorly enough to sort of merit that, especially in terms of offensive efficiency. Like Hatchamore came out and said, like, that their double teams on Embiid had been half-assed and he needed to do better and all these things. But let me read you his field goal percentages for the or field goal makes and attempts for the last six games, Larry. Seven for 12, four for five, six for eight, five of eight, four of six, four of eight. That's 30 of 43, and he is nine of 12 from three. Maybe we could get this guy some touches. Like, I don't understand how he gets two three-point attempts a game at most. I mean, now, Grady's not a knockdown three-point shooter, but like, we're struggling to score as much as we're struggling to defend. And this guy is like scorching the net right now, again, unlimited volume, but like, wouldn't you try that to see if that works before you'd roll some of these other guys out there that haven't done anything? You know, I, I would. I mean, we've been singing about really, you know, since the season started and just trying to figure out, you know, what's really going to, you know, be his charge. Like what's going to get him excited, what's going to get him going. And it, I think the coaches have to figure that out. I think with his personality, somewhat of the culture, sure. uh, he's, he is, he is, going to take what's coming around to him as mm-hmm. opposed to going to take what's going to be necessary for the team to move forward. Yep. So you understand that about a player and understand that he's not necessarily going to step out of, outside of the box and he doesn't want to upset, you know, the things that, you know, you guys have going on, but you have to figure out a, a package for him and a conversation with him. And I'm sure, not sure if this, these things are happening, but to make sure that he's encouraged to play basketball, make sure that he's encouraged to make mistakes Make sure he's encouraged that there's a possibility that he could shoot less than 30% in a game on occasion. I mean, but that's going to engage him to to go ahead and just play basketball because you can't go five for eight, you know, four for six, right? That's just not enough. That's not enough attempts. That's that's not, we need, we need some quantity there. Obviously we, we, we want quality as well, but he's a guy that I think because of his makeup, if he's given the quantity, he's going to take care of that. Right. He's going to he's, he's going to he's going to own that. So I think you you need him to be a piece that's going to move you forward to help you, you know, on the offensive end, but on the defensive end as well. But he's a guy that I see uh, needing that conversation pretty much on the daily basis of, yeah. you know, how great he is, what he can do, what he needs to do, how he can get that done. 
because that's a guy, I mean, that's a piece that you need. And you don't want that guy ending up somewhere else because with the right people around yeah, him, right, exactly, he could be a problem. You know, he could be a problem definitely on the defensive end, but also with the size and the strength that he has in the league that we play in, he could also be a force on the offensive end as well. So you kind of want to try to figure that out really to, to figure out what really charges him and gets him excited to play basketball. In a series where you're like such a heavy underdog, I would think that that would be an emphasis for the team is to like force feed, you know, especially when one of the other two guys are out of the game, like, hey, Rui, like you're the number two option now. And you do sort of need him to be like, hey, give me the ball. I got a mismatch. And I don't know that he does that. But I I would just think that's something you'd want to see is if he can if he can do that, if he can be Tobias Harris or whatever the comp is. Yeah, he, he's a player for me. I mean, he's a player. He's a piece to the puzzle. Um, you know, a minimum of 15 shots, right? Yeah. I mean, he should go into getting a minimum of 15 shots. I think that that's, you know, very reasonable for the, the team that's around him, the amount of time that Westbrook has the ball, the amount of time that Brad has the ball. I think a minimum of 15 shots and how you split those up in transition sure. in sets, I think that that's a very real number. And then on the defensive side, I think that you talk about, you know, the doubling of MB, you have to figure out what you're willing to give up. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what's important for each guy on the team is to understand what they're trying to give up because your doubles from certain guys is going to be tougher, faster, quicker, because you understand what you're trying to give up, whether it's a shooter, Danny Green or Seth Curry's, someone like that. You're just figuring out what you're trying to give up. And I think that that's a good comment, you know, as far as a double team. The, the league, they don't want you to be physical anymore. Mm-hmm. So the days of going into the body of the guy that you're double teaming and really shutting that wall down, they're going to call a foul. I mean, let's just be, let's just be real with that. They're, they're going to call, call a foul. So just figuring out, you know, within the rules, how can you, you know, be more aggressive on your double team? And then obviously what you're giving up. Uh, just talking about Rui and his mindset, he was on the docket to speak to media after the game the other night and he declined to speak to reporters. Is that a, I'm frustrated. Is that, you know, like I'm just upset with where we are as a team and my role, like what should we take away from him choosing not to speak to us? Is, is that a bad, bad sign in your opinion? It is. It, I mean, it is. I mean, the, the media is going to actually question that these are things that you're not the, the voice of the team and not the face of the team. And this is a way to get your message out, you know, not only, you know, how you feel about the situation, but also your teammates and your coaches will see this information as well. And they can too, they can then understand, you know, how you're feeling also. And you're not doing anything that's, you know, you're playing basketball. You're trying to, to do your job. Obviously, they, all those guys can do their job better. But to have a conversation with the media, you know, I, I think that that, that, should, that should happen. I don't think he should decline having comments about the series or the games. Larry, why can't this team shoot anymore? Like they weren't a good three-point shooting team all year, but a lot of these guys are better shooters for their career. And this seems to be a down year across the board for them. Philly has made 17 three, made 17 threes in game three alone. The Wizards have made 18 for the series. Is it the offense isn't getting them good shots or they're taking bad threes? Is it, legs is it covid is it like help me help me figure this out i think it's a combination of of, of a lot of those things right i mean you talk about shooting the basketball 
there's going to be ups and downs from a, from a shooting standpoint for shooters. I mean, you, you think about the three-point shot, that's a, that's a nice distance away from, yeah. from the basket. So I think it's about offense and it's about getting good shots. And those those swing, swing, three-pointers are better threes than your grenade three, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you, you know, if you get the ball with four seconds on the clock, I mean, you know you got to fire one up. That's a tougher shot. And then obviously when you're down in games, it's you need the three ball, but it's a tougher shot when you're down because you need that three even more. And that plays into a little bit of your mental as well. Bad shots. I mean, bad shots. I think you're going to raise that percentage if Bertans takes better shots. I mean, it's crazy. If he takes, if, if he takes five better threes, he's probably going to make three or four of those threes as opposed to, you know, the shots that he's been taking and missing. I mean, that's going to affect your team in a negative way. And we said this all year, just taking a bad three, it just deflates what you're doing. I mean, you had a good possession. You probably had a good stop on the other end. And then you come down and you fire up a shot. That's a bad three. And I think that that's, for me, the shooting percentage, it, it goes back to them taking, you know, those type of shots. I put that on the coaching staff, though. You've got Philly that's sagging off Westbrook. They're locking up Beal. They're willing to leave Hatchamora because half the time he's not getting the ball to shoot that anyway. And half the time he chooses not to shoot it. And they're putting little guys on Bertons who are getting up in him. And like you said, he's taking these like come around to pin down and, you know, fire it up the second it touches his fingertips. And But they don't seem to be able to create like there's no go to. Hey, when we run horns, you know, this is this is going to end up with Bertans getting a good look or not run, you know, like, but whatever, whatever the set is that they're operating out of when he's on the floor, it doesn't seem to be able to generate clean looks for him. And he gets those grenade threes and things like that. And he has been awful. I I try not to say those kinds of things about NBA players in general, because I know how good they're, but like by NBA player standards, he has been as disappointing as a guy can be in a playoff series in game two, he had 23 minutes, zero points, two rebounds, no assists and six fouls. And then in game three, he played 31 minutes, had eight points and was, again, you can sort of only read so much into plus minus, but he was a minus 34. And that seemed the track with the eye test. Uh, the guy's 21 for 77 from three in 28 career postseason games. That's 27%. So this is a trend now. How do you get that guy going? Will they ever get him going? Like, I, I'm just, I don't know what they do with him. Yeah, I mean, and again, we don't know what's being said or how he's being coached up, but somebody has to tell him that these are bad threes. Like, like I'm t- just I, I don't mean, take that, I, yeah. Yeah, there's no question that these are bad threes. Like it's putting us, we're not a a super solid or super great team. So the things that we do have to be, you know, in a concept, in a rhythm of of who we are. Like we know that we can't sacrifice multiple possessions in a quarter for taking bad shots. Like we need to get a good shot. Even if we don't make that shot, we need to get a good shot because that's going to help us with floor battles. That's going to help us get back and give us a little bit a little bit more help on defense where we struggle at as well. Mm-hmm. But that's completely with a guy like, you know, look, if you catch the ball here, don't shoot it. Right. Don't shoot it and figuring out, you know, what sort of sets and plays and things that can get him open looks and having those conversations about what he's done in the past in the different cities that he's been in in the past that he could say, you know, I like this play, you know, this set that this team was running, I really like that. Mm-hmm. I was able to get this, that, or the third from it. So 
for me, it's really about, you know, you don't want to sacrifice a guy getting hot for, you know, a half or a game with the number of bad shots that are being taken. Like we can't sacrifice trying to get hot with taking these bad shots. Now we can try to get hot taking good shots, Mm -hmm. right? Shots that are in rhythm, but we can't sacrifice you trying to get hot by taking these sort of shots and not necessarily uh, being productive. I mean, you can't have that. And then you can't have a guy taking up that much of the time block, 28 minutes, 30 minutes, and not being productive. You know, your offense is going to struggle. You're, you're not playing really great defense. So, you know, how are you planning on winning that basketball game would be my question. He's objectively the worst defender in the series. And he's providing nothing offensively. Like, if you had Andre Roberson out there or something, and he's locking guys down on the perimeter, and he's shooting 27% from three, you can live with that. Or Hutchison or whoever, you know, like, uh, the case would be for the Wizards, but but you can't be a total turnstile defensively and doing those things. And, and you mentioned like getting hot or whatever. You have Danny Green. He makes two wide open corner threes and then he takes like a heat check three. Like you can live with that. When you're Bertans, you can't take three heat check threes before you've made anything. And the NBA TV crew really <laughs> drove me nuts before game two. They were advocating, as Kevin McHale and Jason Terry were saying, that the Wizards should play Bertans at the five and uh, let him run around crazy and tire him beat out and all this shit. And I'm like, it's literally the worst idea I've ever heard. I mean, if, if you've watched five minutes of the Wizards all season or have seen basketball at any point in your life, I would think you would think that's a terrible idea. But what do I know? Yeah, come on, man. That Philly, I, I give Doc, Doc more credit than that. I give Doc more credit than that. If they saw that coming around, I'm sure that they would figure that out. And yeah, I don't think that would fly. (laughs) I wasn't feeling that one myself. All right. Just, just pivoting to somebody that I had much higher expectations for going into this series, Daniel Gafford. You know, we talked about him a little bit earlier in the show. Scott Brooks had a quote uh, last week or at the end, you know, uh, earlier in the series, the way we play, and he's as athletic and is in as great a condition as any big in the league, but with the pace that we play, he's still carrying around. I don't know what he weighs exactly, 260 pounds. That's a lot of weight to play 10, 12 minutes at a time. So we try to break up his minutes as much as possible. And Gafford agreed and said that he's not in great shape and he gets so tired because he plays so hard that he has to ask to come out of the games because he feels like a liability out there. How is that a thing, Larry? Like, first of all, he's the thinnest of the three centers on the team. Not that thin necessarily means conditioned, but if you're going to reference his weight directly, I think that's a little bit strange. After you also said in that quote, he's in as great a condition as any big in the league. Lots of guys play really hard for short bursts and can still play more than 17 minutes a series. Like, what's going on there? Like, that that's very strange to me. Yeah, I mean, those are just comments for me, man. I've you know been around this, the, the game, you know, for a long time, and and when you have a player, I mean, it, coaches have said this for as, as long as I can remember. You know, when you have a player, and you know, these guys are playing hard, and a player asks the coach to to come out, they need a breather. Mm-hmm. It's normally on them when they want to go back in the game. Yeah, it's it's normally on them. It's, I mean, for as long as I've been around the game, if if, if a player who's obviously playing hard, doing the right things, you know, supporting his team he's going to ask for a break before he's going to have a breakdown on offense or defense. Sure. That player usually gets the, 
you know, the opportunity to let the coach know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. You know, got the heart rate back down. Let's get ready to rock and roll. But when you're running around out there and you're, you're dead tired and you make mistakes on the offensive end and the defensive end, and then the coach pulls you out, then it's up to them when you go back in. I mean, you, you have to wait around in that rotation. So for, for the coach to acknowledge that a guy or the player to acknowledge that when I go, you know, I'm going full speed, there's going to be a time I just need to take that break and I ask the coaches to come out. That's not giving up my spot. Like, I, I, like I want to go back in. I just need a, a, a breather to go back in. So I've always known that if a player asks to come out of the game, then it's up to them, you know, or they can at least make the comment of, hey, coach, I'm ready. Yeah. But if you're pulled out because you're not able to get up and down the court, then it's up to, you know, the coaches on when you go in. It's, it's up to their discretion. And I don't really see that with Gafford. I see him playing hard. I see him, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, getting up and down the court. And a matter of being conditioned, if we're all aware of this, it, it's only one really one way to really get into basketball shape, and that's play basketball. Yeah. But at the same time, when we're talking about being out of shape, you need to get your butt on the bike, the treadmill, right. suicide lines. You need to figure out how to simulate the training to get your heart rate up, to allow your heart rate to get down so you're getting in better condition. So for me as a professional, that, that's not an excuse of, of you know not being in shape or not being um, you know, in condition to go out and play the game of basketball. We all, you know, suffer from that. But you know as a professional player how to get your work in to be in better shape to, to play more minutes if, if, that's the, if that's the reason why. I kind of understood it, like, when they first traded for him. You go from playing, like, eight minutes at the time in Chicago where you can't really practice. Now you're in the 20s. Like, I could see how that might make a difference. But you've been here for multiple months, like the I'm not in shape enough to play 20 minutes a game at 24 years old or whatever. I don't know. That's not a good sign for me. And there's been a lot of talk about, should he be the starter next year? Do we still need Thomas Bryant? Like, that would worry me if we're hearing this from this guy right now that he can't play 20 minutes a game. I wouldn't be punting on Thomas Bryant, who I've seen play 20 minutes a game, for the theoretical hope that Gafford can work through all those issues. And we got a couple questions about that specifically from both Lloyd Baggins, Quentin Young. They wanted to know what they do with, with Bryant next year, specifically, can Bryant play the four even next to Gafford at times, which I don't personally see as a great idea, but maybe you could do it for a few minutes here and there. Like, how do you see those two guys fitting either together or in a rotation next year? I see those guys in a rotation. And you have to, you know, you have to figure out, you know, what they bring to the table, how well they play off of each other, how well they support each other on the defensive end, because I think that that's where you're going to look at who can play the four, who can play the five. You're going to mm-hmm. put these guys in a ton of switches to guard, you know, the two and the three, basically each time down the court. So it's basically who's going to be able to guard and how well they play off each other and, and able to protect the rim. And yeah, I mean, you have you have a guy that you brought over, you know, in midseason. And he's going to get a chance to go through your protocols. He's going to get a chance to go through your system as far as the conditioning program or the the skill development program. And you see what you have. I don't think you think about making a decision right now. I mean, because again, Thomas is coming off of an injury and yeah, it's a, it's a 12 month deal, but you know, in order to feel like yourself, it's 16 months, Mm -hmm. 18 months. So you're not going to have that answer. Uh, or how you know well he's able to do post injury, right? You'll have some he'll he'll have the chance to get out there on the court, but I wouldn't say that we're going to judge him on 
you know, where he's at at 12 months or 14 months versus where he'll be at 16 to 18 months. I would hold judgment back as far as to who, if there's one of these guys that we should get rid of versus the, the other until, you know, until you get a guy like Thomas back because you were, I mean, we were singing his praises before he got hurt, you know, the energy that he was bringing to the table, the development that he was going through with the ability to shoot the outside shot. So you just get a chance now to see uh, Gafford in a more role, you know, every day, obviously once the season is over, you get a chance to get him into your system and see what you have, but don't make a decision now on, you know, which guys should stay or how these guys play together. I think you just let the time tick a little bit. Yeah, and be selling low on Bryant right now anyway, which, you know, maybe if you don't need him, that's that's a great luxury at the trade deadline or whatever. But Bryant wasn't known for his lateral quickness in the first place. Now coming back from a knee injury, I also wouldn't be trying to feature him at power forward. And like you said, let him get get hunted every possession. So yeah, that would that would be that would not be my my first choice. Uh, not that you couldn't do it uh, for for short stretches. All right, Larry. the The thing everybody seems to want to know, both Sam Lieber and Lori Green, basically asked the same question: What's the bottom line on Scott Brooks here? Do we see him back next season? In your opinion, you know what? I kind of do think we see him back next season. I think the way those guys finish the the ending of this season, as far as their fight. That had to have something to do with coaching. Obviously, you, your players have to go out and win the basketball games, but there's some, you know, some tinkering around that the coaches they hit they hit the right button because those guys really did fight uh, through the end of the season. And I've seen those situations go really, really bad uh, when a team is struggling and there's the birds are circling around. You know, the head coach as far as if he's going to be back next year. I've seen teams just pretty much just give up and let the coach kind of ride off into the sunset. You know, if it's a matter of these guys fighting for Coach Brooks or fighting for themselves, I just think that they came with the fight at the second part of the season and made the playoffs. So, you know, you have to to take that into consideration, but also where you're going with the organization. What are the pieces that you're trying to put into place? What's the voice that you want to to be heard, you know, with these new pieces or with the, the new direction that you want to go? Is there a new direction that you want to go? Is there a different style of basketball that you want to play? You know, looking, you know, from the front office. Uh, for me, sitting on the sideline, I don't know that everything that's available uh, when you talk about players and you talk about salary cap and things of that nature. But you, you know, from an organization standpoint, you know what's available to you and you, you know, should have the experience, to the expertise to understand the voice that's going to be needed to push that group of men uh, in the right direction. So that's a 50-50 question for me. Obviously, there's not a right or wrong answer. There's not a yes or no answer for that question. But I do think you have to sit down and understand the direction that you're going to really feel, you know, what voice is really necessary to push forward. I just think personally, and again, I don't know firsthand how locker room dynamics play out, that certain coaches seem to be most successful in like certain situations like Brett Brown handled a rebuilding team really well. Like everybody talked about how he did a great job of like motivating young players, like, but he wasn't the guy to get a good team over the hump, you know, with offensive creativity or game plans or schemes or whatever. I I just think maybe they're at the point where they've gotten all they can get out of Scott Brooks. And I I think to me, it just totally comes down to how much Westbrook and Beal want him back realistically like if Westbrook is banging his fist on the table this is my guy 
we can do great things. I just really don't see them making a move for the sake of making a move, especially, you know, the, the organization took a financial hit. Can they bring him back maybe for less money? I don't know if a coach would take a play cut. Like, I, I just don't, I don't know what that looks like, but I can't see them bringing in a high priced replacement or a higher priced replacement, just sort of where they are financially. So if you're bringing in a lesser name, are Beal and Westbrook really going to respond well to that? Like, hey, we brought in a guy that makes half what Scott Brooks makes, but nobody's heard of him. Like, I just don't know how that's received with those guys. So if I were a betting man, I would expect to see Scott Brooks back next year as well. I think 90% of the fan base is pretty much convinced he's gone just based on how hapless they've looked the last couple of games. But I don't know. We How long did we see Ernie Grunfeld here for before they made a change? Like, I'm just of the opinion, I'll believe it when I see it. So I, 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 that's probably disappointing to a lot of the fan base, Larry, but it's just sort of the track record here, I think. Status quo. Yeah, and, and that's really understanding what, what the status quo has been. You know, you, you're trying to change something, right? You're, like we said, again, like the, the Wizards had a couple of tough years where they, they didn't get a chance to sniff the playoffs. Before that, they were competing in the playoffs. They were mm-hmm. You know, they, they had an identity. They've seemed to have lost that identity, you know, the last couple of years with injuries and things of that nature that are going on. So I think if you're thinking about making a, a coaching change and, and bringing in, you know, whether it's a seasoned person or not a seasoned person, it's going to matter the players that you put on the court. Mm-hmm. If it's a seasoned coach and you have Brad and West, then obviously you could put some pieces together and, and you could possibly have a good situation there. If it's an unseasoned coach, you know, a guy that's that's getting started or sitting on someone's bench or something of that nature, then it's probably going to another, take another player to make the guys that are there comfortable, a Brad mm-hmm. or a Westbrook. Yep. So I think that that's the balance when you think about who's going to lead the ship and then what other pieces or components that are going to go along with that to make those guys feel comfortable that, you know, we are heading in the right direction. If it were you and you were the team president and somebody said, Larry, I need you to pick the next head coach for the Wizards. I don't need you to name a name or anything, but what's that profile look like? If it were me, it would be a former player with some credibility that also has coaching experience and have to be head coaching. I'm not saying this name specifically, but like a Sam Cassell, a, a guy that those guys will look at and and sort of get, you know, he did this, he gets it, but he's also been around Doc. He's been around all these other guys and 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 that sort of thing. Do, do you have like sort of a profile in mind for what would what would fit for this team? Well, I think the guys that have been around the, the, the game are the, those guys that are successful. And I don't necessarily put them in the, you know, I played the game and now I'm coaching the game space. That's not necessarily, I think that's that's a good quality to have. I think that's something that's great that goes on the resume. A lot of these guys, they don't, you know, you know, a lot of these guys, they don't know history. So yeah, if sure. a guy played, like, it doesn't really matter. You just say that he played and, and hopefully he's a good player. If not, mm-hmm. players are really not going to give a damn who who he is or not. Okay. So I think that, that, you know, you have a young game now with the different concepts, the different angles that we play at now because of the defensive rules and the offensive rules. So you want somebody that's, you know, that's that's in the, the, the new age. I think when you're, you're pushing forward now, but has some seasoned um, or, or it's been seasoned by a veteran coach or a guy like a doc, or, you know, like you talk about Sam Facil. So 
his quality would be he has been around the game. Uh, he's also, you know, has been under Doc and, you know, has been in different playoff battles and different wars. So he understands, you know, the preparation. And the ice cream on top of that is he actually played in the league. So he knows that some of these concepts will work and some of these concepts won't work. I think that that's the advantage of having a former player be a coach when, when sometimes when I see coaches try things or do things, I'm like, you as a player, you know that that wasn't going to work or that didn't make sense or that angle was too tight or that space, it just wasn't enough space to do what you were trying to do. And as a player, as a smart player like myself, like I know some of those things, um, you know, that, that happens. So that's not necessarily a quality uh, that I would look for, you know, if I'm leading an organization as a, as a former player, but I would like them to be seasoned by a seasoned coach or maybe even a, a former player in, in their own right. Uh, Darvin Ham is another name that you hear thrown around a lot, Larry. He was sort of a contemporary of yours, right? What, what do you think about uh, Darvin or what do you know about him? Is he a guy that might make sense potentially? I, I think so. I think he's going to he's going to get credibility with the amount of time that he spent in the league. And yes, a former player, but also in, you know, the meeting room mm -hmm. with coaches uh, going through the draft process, going through the summer league process. Yeah having journeymen come in and coach those guys. So all of those things that he's been doing to, you know, just kind of hone it, hone on in his craft. I think he's a guy for me that I say, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely deserves a shot. He's definitely put in uh, the time. It's now sitting down with him to understand what his thought process is, what his, what are his concepts? Mm -hmm. You know, what is his idea of how to play offense, how to play defense to see if it's a right fit for, what I'm thinking, but also the right fit for the type of players that we have on the team. And then is his thought process in a way that's going to help me build my team, meaning there, there are players out there that we can actually get that fit what he's trying to do, offense and defense, that make us a better team. And it's not either a high price tag or we don't have to move other players to do that, but just really understanding, you know, from a coaching standpoint, what they wanted to get done and then – how can I help them get it done? I think that conversation that you just talked about is probably the strongest argument for why they might make a coaching change is just Tommy Shepard might want to say, this is my guy that I've handpicked to execute my vision for the team. He's not my predecessor's guy. So if they do something different, I think that conversation will be a big reason why of who kind of gels and clicks with him and how he sees this team looking, you know, over the next couple of years or whatever, assuming Tommy Shepard is also back, but I guess that's also kind of on the table. I think you need a fiery guy. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think you need a fiery guy. I think, I think Brad is a, is a, is a jokingly fiery guy. Mm -hmm. right? he, 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 he does things that he, he'll let you know that he's fired up and he's ready to rock sure. and roll. Westbrook is a guy that's a fiery guy. So I think in order to, to lead those guys, there's a balance of obviously being calm to make sure that you keep those guys in the right space. But there's also that mindset of our coach is right with us. Mm -hmm. And when we're fired up, he's fired up. So I think that that's a quality that I would look for uh, in, in a coach as well. And just figuring out how that dynamic works within, you know, having a bunch of fired up guys in the midst. But, you know, this is a competitive deal, man. I mean, we're, you know, guys are trying to feed family. So you, you kind of figure those things out. But that is definitely a quality that I would look for in the head coach moving forward. I don't know enough about him specifically. Is Darvin Ham that kind of guy? Like, is he a dude that would like get people hyped up, or is he more of a laid back kind of guy? 
You know what? I don't. I, I don't know. I'm. I'm not sure. I think you have to. You know, I, I was around him in a different space. Right? <laughs> yeah, he was fired. Like, get out of my space. Like, don't come this close to me. Like, he was that sort of guy. So you just got to take that to the sideline, and it's just a, a, a vibe that a, a, you know when you talk about a fiery coach, when you they're able to make sure that they're poking at the officials. Mm -hmm. They're able to make sure that everyone on the on the bench is kind of inching to get in the, into the game. Like they don't necessarily know, you know, what's next, how this coach is going to react to to what's going on in the court. So you're really keeping everybody on your on their toes, but it, they're doing it in a way that they're for the team and they're for the group. And I don't this I don't have that person's face in you know in mind, but I think that that's a quality uh, that's very good for this group of guys that that the Wizards have right now. I actually love that. I hadn't thought of it that way. And I'm glad he said that like a little, little wild card to him would be nice. Like Thomas Bryant would respond well to that. Gafford would respond well to that. I, I think Denny is a fiery guy and he's got that sort of edge to him. And I think Rui could use that somebody that could kind of help instill that mindset with him would be huge. I think. i tell you who's a fiery guy that, that you may or may not think so in your opinion, but Eric Spolster. Yeah. My yeah. He takes no shit from those people. Yeah. So, so he does it in a way that, he, you know, I don't know how exactly to describe it, but as a, as a player, you know, with him stepping aside and allowing UD to step into the huddle mm -hmm. and to put UD out in a situation where he knows that things are a little bit testy and he wants to make sure that the physical will is, is, is understood from his team. Like that's the, you know, that's the fiery sort of things that I'm kind of, you know, talking about as well. You hear stories about when he was like the video guy going up to Pat Riley and showing up at his house with a tape and being like, we're doing, you know, this is a bad defensive strategy or, Hey, Stan Van Gundy, this shit doesn't work. Like I, I like it. I, I'm, I don't know. I always played sports with a little bit of an edge personally. So that that's my kind of guy that's not sitting down the whole game. And uh, I'm going to have a white claw because we won our game. Like that, that's just not the vibe I want for my team. Uh, Larry, last thing I want to get you out of here after after this one, but fans apparently forgot how to behave in the one year away from pro sports. You've got somebody spitting on Trey Young. Cameras show Philly fan throwing Westbrook or popcorn at Russell Westbrook. And uh, Westbrook said, I wouldn't come up to me on the street and throw popcorn at my head because, well, you know what happens in these arenas. You got to start protecting the players. We'll see what the NBA does. At any point in your career, did you ever like feel unsafe as a player in an NBA environment or because somebody was throwing bottles at you or anything like that? You know what? Not really. I think that there was maybe an occasion where a, a couple of times where fans threw things on the court, like, mm. a, like some coins or something. And, and when you talk, we, we had conversations about it. I mean, being hit with the coin from, you know, X distance away with somebody really throwing it at you. Yeah, like. Like they can hurt. Like yeah. I mean, you don't know where it's going to hit you at. Or I mean, it, so so those things are, are are definitely you know unfortunate and sad to see that. Obviously, everyone everyone wanted to get back into the arena to see their you know see their teams play, see people that they would normally see on a nightly basis with going to to games and and building that community. And we were so upset that we couldn't have the ability to get into the arenas that. Fans now feel entitled. They feel that they have the right to to degrade a, a guy that's a player that's coming in to, you know, to work and to uh, to put on a show. 
to make sure that, that you're having a good time for the money that you pay right. to come and watch them play to show totally disrespect of, of spitting on someone, uh, dumping popcorn at someone, throwing a, a water bottle that had water in it. Yeah, I, that's I believe the worst. It had in it. So yeah. again, when someone spits on you, when you're not in work mode, or I wouldn't even say in work mode, just you can't get to them. <laughs> that hurts you. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that hurts you and that bothers you more than, winning or losing a basketball game because that person just showed that they don't feel like you're worth anything. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I equate, you know, someone yeah, you're spitting not on you or trying to spit on you. That's what I equate to that is that they're not giving a damn about who you are. And I think that these guys have done so much good, you know, in the communities, um, you know, in the cities that they play in and the places where they're from that they don't deserve that. Like they don't deserve to to feel like um, they're not worth anything, and I think the league has to definitely do something fast because the wrong person is going to turn into Detroit. Yeah, and I don't want to feel like I'm the wrong person, but I'm the wrong person. Like that that sort of stuff bothers me because of just the history of you know, black people and, you know, what they deal with or what we yeah. deal with on a regular basis and to come into an arena where we're all sitting next to each other, different races, which we're, we're, we're clapping for, you know, different races and, and, and things of that nature when we're all sitting in that environment and you take it upon yourself to, to do something that's going to degrade me. I think the NBA really needs to, to step in, uh, obviously greater protection for the players, but also for these, People, they're not fans. They're, they're these people that are, you know, disrespecting, you know, other people. I think that there's an assault or something that should happen um, that's greater than, you know, being escorted banned. out of the yeah. arena. Yeah, I agree. And I think somebody made the comment of them being banned from all sporting events. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a step. But at the same time, you have to take it into the real world outside of the sporting arena. And there needs to be real charges that are brought against these people that are making these attempts to hurt someone or degrade someone uh, in that in that manner. And those are really my real thoughts on it, um, because I know with those guys and how they feel about you know their families and how they feel, how they're perceived. That's a bad look for them. And, and it carries on and it makes them feel like did this person have the right or I mean, it just brings into different, you know, different thoughts and different you know, things that are, you know, outside of basketball that are really tough. Uh, we talk about what we're living in today. I, I'm all for heckling, you know, especially if it's done in a funny, creative way, like even some name calling, you know, to some extent, like not, not when it's like racial or, or anything like that, but you know, Hey, you know, you're, you're soft or, you know, like what those kinds of things are, that's part of the nature of sports. The minute you're you're trying to demean somebody, like the spitting thing is crazy, or you could potentially harm them. Like you said, a water bottle thrown from a distance with water in it. If that hits somebody in, in an eye or whatever, you're taking their livelihood away to some extent. And I, I saw a couple comments, and some of them were from former players, which was a little surprising to me. So Kyrie steps on the, the Celtic logo, and that somehow justifies throwing shit at him is, is a little crazy to me. But Cedric Maxwell came out and said that both acts, Kyrie's stomping 
and the water bottle throwing were equally despicable. I think that's the craziest shit I've ever heard. Now, do I think what Kyrie did is a little silly? Yeah, but he's not hurting anyone. You know, Maxwell's from that generation where like guys were still throwing batteries, you know, at players and stuff. So I guess he's been through that and doesn't think too much of it. But, you know, we've got to sort of like reassess as a society what we're allowing other people to do and put up with. And I kind of try to like I tend to think of NBA fans as slightly more enlightened than a lot of fan bases. And my wife and I are talking about this. You know, everybody was respectful at the game the other night. Like I've been to some football games where shit gets crazy. And I think a lot of that is somebody's drunk from the tailgate or whatever. You don't really have that at an NBA game too much. Like some guys get out of hand, but it's not the same percentage of people where they sort of like, you know, everybody like the mob gets incited by somebody else or whatever. So yeah, the NBA has got to do something there. I, I don't know if that's working with cities to put that into the, like the laws of attending sporting events where there's some kind of crime. But like you said, until there's a consequence, people will keep pushing the envelope more and more, I think. Yeah, they they will. I mean, they will. And that's the sad part about it is once you see someone get to, get away with it, then you're going to try it. They're going to try those. They're going to try it um, because there's cameras everywhere. Obviously, it's it's on talk show radio. You know, they'll, they'll start being a little sneakier with what they do. And then you obviously have to rely on the fans and the people around them to, to point these people out. But it shouldn't really get to that. You know, you, you're watching in the, in the baseball side, you see guys, you know, fighting each other, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the stands. And that's obviously you have alcohol that's, you know, involved in that. The guy that threw the water bottle at Kyrie had a Garnett jersey on. So I'm sure he's a fan, right? I'm, I'm sure he supports his team. But you know, even if he saw Kyrie step on the logo, that still gives him no right to take it upon himself to defend that logo. It gives Cedric no reason to, even if Kyrie stepped on that logo, it gives him no reason to, to justify someone throwing a, rod, a, a water bottle at him because the act was despicable, right? I mean, so we have to, to recalibrate, you know, how we think about people in general. I know Cedric is a Boston guy, so he's going to have those comments that are going to, you know, always shine light or not necessarily shine a negative light mm-hmm. on Boston. But we have to recalibrate how we think about people um, because if Kyrie takes that jersey off, he's just a regular person walking mm-hmm. down the street. My son, he's, you know, somebody's like, that's a problem. Like, we have to acknowledge that that's a problem. Kyrie's dad, like, that's a problem for Kyrie's dad. Mm-hmm. Westbrook, that's a problem for his parents. Like, yeah. for his parents to see somebody dump his stuff kids. on his head, I like I, that they have a problem with that. They probably mm-hmm. have even more of a problem than Westbrook has. Mm-hmm. Or Westbrook probably has more of a problem because he knows his parents have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. So we just have to recalibrate like how we treat people and how we value someone else's ex- existence because those sort of things that we talk about in the sporting event, that's not hurting your way of life. You know, if they win, lose, whatever, that's not going to hurt your way of life. And I think that that's how we need to start to to look at, you know, those things, but definitely stricter, harder punishments for those guys, people uh, that are engaging in those sort of acts of violence towards players. And that's how I see it. You want to boo him. You want to call him a bum on Twitter, like go nuts. Uh, But yeah, there's a line there. As someone that was an active player during the malice in the palace, what was the player reaction to all that player? Like did any, did the majority of the league think it was crazy? Did they think what Ron and Steven Jackson did was justified? Like what was kind of the vibe from the, the rest of the 450 there? 
Uh, crazy. It was completely crazy. But again, you have to. This was pre a lot of the announcements in the in the in the arenas of you know fan, um, you know how they conduct themselves. Like this is this is pre that right. This, all of that stuff happened because of uh, what happened in Detroit. So fans were buck wild. I mean, fans would, you know, they would toss a drink at you, or you know, you can walk through the tunnel and you would feel sprinkles of something you didn't know what it what was. It was right. Yeah. So. I thought it was crazy, obviously, to go into the stands. But as a player and as a guy that's – I don't want to say I understood, <laughs> but when you see that stuff happening and you've heard, you know, the comments and things that people say without touching you, mm-hmm. and then you get touched, then you just – I think I just took it to a different level. Because fans in Detroit, they're going to get you. They're going to pound on you like you saw. Everything that goes along with Detroit basketball, right, you get that. And then when you have that situation of now you're being touched, like I, I didn't want to see it, but I understood that it was that it was coming. And we all thought it would hurt the game somewhat. And I think it was an experience that hurt the players. It didn't necessarily hurt the game. So we came out of that. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, All right, Larry, close us out. What are we, uh, what are we going to see here tonight? What do you, what's the expectation? Well, I think the expectation is those guys got to go out and obviously play this game as if it's their last game. Um, And obviously you want to score a bunch of points, but you want to be really engaged on the defensive end. And that's what I want to see. I want to see guys flying around, rotating, you know, running those guys off the three-point line. And I would like to see the the guys, you know, on the Wizards team get to the free throw line. I think that's how you slow the game down. Um, You you slow the game down so there's not – as many points, so you don't have to take as many three-pointers to catch up if they do get ahead. Um, so that's that's what I want to see. I want them to slow the game down, bring the points down a little bit as, as much as they can by using that free throw line and limiting the possessions, uh, and then running around, uh, rotating on defense uh, to give themselves a, a, the, the best chance to win. I'm with you. Even if they lose, leave leave us with a good taste in our mouth for the offseason. Give us something to kind of hope for for next year. Uh, all right, everybody, we'll get to some off-season questions realistically probably by next episode, so keep sending those our way. I know we got a few this week that are very off-season focused, so we'll spend a lot of time on that next week, most likely. Uh, until then, everybody have a great week. Enjoy the game, and uh, remember to rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.